Morning, everyone, and uh, thank you, Catherine. Uh, in Man on the Edge, uh, season one, we, uh, we journeyed with Moses from uh, his birth to Sinai, from Exodus chapter one, right through to, as Catherine says, Exodus chapter 19. But we didn't finish Moses' story, and uh, quite a few of you made that point. And so starting today is Man on the Edge, season two. Uh, which is going to take us from Sinai via other key moments in Moses' life right through until his death in about 40 years from now. That is 40 years from events at Mount Sinai as opposed to 40 years from now. Uh, I know the story's good, but that would be ripping it. But just before we remind ourselves where we left uh, season one, let me come back and say something about our last series, One Another, because two weeks ago, I did suggest, suggest, or I did share the suggestion of repeating this particular series back to back and word for word. And I asked for your reactions and for your comments. And a number of you spoke to me, and quite a few of you emailed me. Now, I realized that if you didn't like the idea then you probably kept quiet and uh, didn't send me an email. I'm not that naive. But anyone who didn't express an opinion was very positive and genuinely uh, thought that there would be real mileage in revisiting this particular material. And so although I'm clearly not repeating it immediately, I do intend to run this series again here at Windsor in 2014. The content, the format will probably be slightly different But generally speaking, it's going to be a rerun or a repeat, a kind of live version of Windsor iPlayer. Uh, So that will happen. But anyway, back to Moses. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. It's page 76 in the the Red Pew Bibles. And we are going to kind of come back to where we we left the story at the beginning of January. Our, Our last Sunday here was the 13th of January. And Exodus 19 is a relatively complex chapter. But right at the heart of it is a unique divine appearance. God shows up. God comes down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And that's just to quote verse 11. And if you were here on the 13th of January, we spent some time reflecting on the importance of preparing to meet a holy and a dangerous God. And we discovered that, that three things were necessary to engage with God. The first, there needs to be a willingness to obey. That if God is going to speak into our lives, it includes this morning, if God is going to speak into our lives anytime, there needs to be a desire To not only listen, but to follow through then on what he says. To kind of hear it and then do it. And these people in Exodus 19 made that decision up front. And so if you just look at verse 8, and we'll come back to this. They said, we will do everything the Lord has said. We've heard it, or we will hear it, and then we'll do it. That's always a question we have to face. Are we going to hear what God says? But that's never enough. Are we then going to act on it? 
Second thing was needed was a commitment to holiness. And so in this chapter, you find the people consecrating themselves, preparing, washing, getting ready, because it's all about clean hands and a pure heart. Still is. If you're going to engage with God, if you're going to meet with God this morning, clean hands and a pure heart. Really important. And finally, the third thing by way of preparation was a deep respect for God's presence. In other words, reverence. And remember, anybody who casually rushed into God's presence was history. Touch this mountain, says verse 12, and you're to be put to death. Respect and reverence were not only important, they were actually life-preserving came across a brilliant, slightly alternative definition of reverence this week. A deeply engaged centering of the self upon God as Lord. It's a great phrase. Just take it away and consider that during the week. Now, in light of these three vital preparations, there is a unique divine appearance. On the back of these things, God shows up. A thick cloud descends, fire burns, thunder crashes, all of which communicates, and we looked at this, that God is present, God is pure, God is powerful. Again, was then, and he is now. God is here. God is holy. God is powerful. And what's the response in Exodus 19? Men and mountains tremble. And that's where we left it. End of chapter 19 and about to venture into chapter 20, that infamous text containing the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. But before we go there, I want to go back into chapter 19 and relook and highlight certain other things that we didn't deal with on the 13th of January. And which provide a kind of helpful summary or resume of the Moses story. So look at verse 3. The people are all camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. By the way, they spend 11 months here. Just an interesting thought. 11 months. But from base camp, God calls Moses up the mountain. And he instructs him on what to say to the Israelites. And in the space of one verse... God reminds Moses, and therefore for all the people, of two core realities that sort of capture this story so far. Here are two truths that they need to get hold of and remember as they continue their journey with God. Here are two things that are so important for them to grasp as they move forward and as they do life. And these two core realities are every bit as relevant, every bit as factual, every bit as true for us, the people of God, literally thousands of years later. Here it is, verse 4. Have a look at it with me. You yourselves have seen, this is God speaking, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God assures, or he reassures Moses and the people of his power and his presence. Or if you like, his power and his protection. That God has been there for them, 
God has been there with them. Here's a group of people who've been rescued, but not only rescued, they've been accompanied. And therefore, they can step into the future with confidence. And again, nothing has changed. God is still powerful, said it. God is still present. And that should alter our perspective on today. It should also change how we see the week that lies ahead. We feel weak. We feel inadequate for the challenges that we all face. But yet God's powerful. And God goes with us. We don't journey alone. But let's look at this a little closer. So to start with, God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. He doesn't spell out what they'd seen. He doesn't go into any great detail here. And that's because he doesn't have to. Have to because they all know their story. They all know what God did to Egypt. Right from each and every dramatic plague, including the tenth involving the sacrificial lamb, which finally sealed their release from slavery and exodus out of captivity. From that, right to the Red Sea incident, when every single one of them walked through, miraculously walked through on dry land, while these two great walls of water came crashing down, killing all the Egyptians. They knew what God had done for them. That was their story. God's power was tangible. Enemy defeated, salvation accomplished, freedom secured. And without heading too much off script, I hope and pray that those of us who do live in light of last weekend's events, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, the death, the resurrection of our sacrificial lamb, will constantly recall and remember what God has powerfully done for us and what he has done to our enemy. That we, like these people, have been rescued. We have been saved. We have been set free. And with the eyes of faith, we've seen it. Or even right now, we can see it. God is powerful. You have seen what I did in Egypt. You've seen what I've done in your life. Revealed accomplished secondly God is present he's been with he's accompanied and the picture language used here in the second half of verse 4 is striking and it's moving how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself and and I want to pause here for a moment and I want to consider this image of God as or like an eagle Eagles are uh, mesmerizing, amazing birds. And throughout scripture, there's numerous references to them. Eagles are also intriguing creatures. People have always been fascinated by eagles, and they still are. There's a place in America at the minute where there's a live cam watching an eagle's nest, where you can just go online and do nothing all day but just watch an eagle's nest. Because people are fascinated, intrigued by these creatures. It's always been the way. Listen to this saying from Agar from Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30 lists lots of sayings of Agar, whoever he was. But here's one of his sayings. 
There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand, and here's the first one. You'll have to look up the other three. The way of the eagle in the sky. There's something mysterious about eagles. By the way, don't look up the other three now. There's something mysterious about eagles. And so here in Exodus 19, as as God refers to his constant presence, he chooses an eagle. And he chooses eagles' wings to help the Israelites understand more of his nature and character. He wanted his people to recognize and remember that although at times they might have felt like they were on their own, that they were walking a lonely path, they were actually being carried along by none other than their mesmerizing, intriguing, mysterious, gracious, caring, protective, ever-present God. And as you reflect on this picture, on this idea, and let your imagination run wild. It's no surprise that this imagery of God as an eagle, or at least as having eagle-like wings, is picked up by a number of the psalmists. Just listen and look at how some of those writers celebrate this fact. Hide me in the shelter of your wings. Psalm 17. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Wings 36. I long to take refuge in the shelter of your wings. 61. I sing in the shadow of your wings. 63. God will cover you with his feathers. And under his wings you will find refuge. 91. And so this morning, I didn't want us to miss this. I didn't want us to rush past this image of God-like an eagle, there's something else to just take away, reflect on and meditate on this week. And let, as I say, your imagination run wild with that. But let's move on, because given those two realities, given God's power and presence, we then come, or we then find a therefore at the beginning of verse 5, or in certain translations, instead of a therefore, you read now. Or in other translations, they combine them both and they actually say, now, therefore. So in light of these two things, in light of God's power, in light of his presence, in light of how amazing he is, in light of the fact that he's been with you, he's carried you on eagle's wings, there's a therefore. There's something coming. In light of having been saved, having been rescued, having been accompanied, you're then called to obedience. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. And this sequence, and I did refer to this in passing back in January, but this sequence is critical. The people had been saved and were now called to obey. Rescued Passover, Red Sea, then Sinai. You see, obedience to what God says and commands is a concern that grows out of relationship. The people would not be saved by keeping the law. God hadn't rescued them on the basis of what they did or didn't do. Instead, God comes to his people full of mercy, full of compassion, full of grace. He saves them by the blood of the Passover lamb. He leads them through the Red Sea. And then he brings them to Sinai to give them the law. Now they discover how They should live with God and with each other. And this is still the way it works. We are not saved as a result of anything we do or ever could do or ever might do. It is God who rescues, God who saves. But then, 
He calls us to lives of submission, surrender, and obedience to his word. Sequence is critical. Get it out of sync, and we'll get everything wrong. Back to Exodus 19. Because then God, because then God unwraps the result of their obedience. In other words, if you are willing to obey my voice, if you're willing to keep my covenant, and he is about to reveal all of that in chapter 20 and following, but he hasn't spelt it out yet. But God is actually looking for their buy-in up front. Okay? If you do all of this, but he hasn't told them what he wants them to do yet. That, that's coming in the next chapters. But he wants their buy-in up front. Verses 5 and 6. Now, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, here's the result. Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. First thing. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Second thing. And a holy nation. Third thing. Now, what this meant exactly, or what it meant to the Israelites at this time, is relatively unclear. But what we can say with some certainty is that as a consequence of their obedience, they would become God's precious treasure. That they would serve other nations as a kind of priesthood. And that they would be set apart, they would be separate, they would be holy. But not in isolation, not set apart from other people, but set apart for other people. Again, this is so important for us to get as Christians. We are not set apart from other people, we're set apart for other people. We are the means, these people were the means by which God would become known to others. It's not the only time that this idea and this description appears in Scripture, and many of us are already making the connection between this verse in Exodus 19 and a New Testament verse, which is found where? Yeah. In Peter, exactly 1 Peter 2, verse 9, where the apostle writes this about, his, about the church. You are a chosen people. So this is written to us. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who's called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You see, we are to take up the mission to which the people of God have long been called. God has somehow and mysteriously chosen us, chosen you and me. I can't explain that. Can't. Not even going to try. But he has chosen us, his church, to be set apart, to be holy, to live godly lives. But not just so that we will sit back and enjoy belonging to God in some private sense. Why? So that we might declare his praises. So that we might make him known. As Peter goes on to say a couple of verses later in his epistle, live such good lives among those who don't know God. Why? So that they can see your good deeds and then do what? Glorify your father on the day he visits us. That's the reason we've been rescued. To declare God's praises. To shine our light out there. To make God known. Here in Exodus 19, 
God's people have been brought to this point in time for a reason. They've been rescued for a specific purpose. And if they obeyed God's law, then these three things, treasure, possession, kingdom of priests, a holy nation, would be true of them and they would become a light to the nations. They would be blessed to be a blessing. Back to Genesis 12. I choose you to be blessed, but I want you to be a blessing. And for us as a local church, rescued by God in Jesus, these things are true of us as we are called 